I don't think that Mr. Trump is forever. Now, Mr. Trump is an entertainer, and in my judgment, he's worked one pedal on the organ quite enough, and I'm not sure there's another pedal there for him. Nothing lasts forever. Certainly men in their 70s don't. History will pass him by. That's Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist George Will, predicting the Republican Party will escape the grip of Trumpism. I'm Margaret Hoover. This is the Firing Line Podcast. Will was hired by the late William F. Buckley Jr., the original Firing Line host and founder of the National Review, in 1973. I uh, called Bill Buckley and said, I think you need a Washington editor of National Review. And he essentially said, you're right, I do, and you're it. They were friends and colleagues as conservatives finally found a political home in the Reagan era's GOP. But on the road to Trump, something happened to American conservatism. I think the word he'd use is vulgar. The vulgarians are in the saddle riding the rest of us at this point. It's a state of affairs that led the 80-year-old George Will to do something new. Vote for a Democrat, Joe Biden. Would you still say that he's an improvement? Yes, unquestionably. Which doesn't mean he likes Biden's policies, but he thinks most of today's Republicans are not actually conservatives. Calling something conservatism doesn't make it conservatism. George Will's conservatism is a persuasion without a party. So can there really be a comeback? Will says the past holds clues to the future. George Will, welcome back to Firing Line. Thank you, glad to be with you. Earlier this year, you celebrated your 80th birthday. You've been alive for roughly one third of the life of this republic. And this week, you released your 16th book, an anthology of your columns from 2008 to 2020 entitled American Happiness and Discontents, The Unruly Torrent. Relevant to the history of this program is that you write that your journey as a columnist began in 1973 when William F. Buckley Jr. hired you to be the Washington editor for National Review. Tell me more. Well, I was leaving the Senate staff partly because uh, the Republican senator for whom I worked managed to lose, even while Nixon was carrying 49 states, which is a give you some sense of my political prowess. And I uh, called Bill Buckley and said, I think you need a Washington editor of National Review. I'd written a few things for him. And he essentially said, you're right, I do, and you're it. Bill had a habit of collecting young people that he thought might have some promise, and Joan Didion and Gary Wills and David Brooks and on and on the list goes. So that's how it happened. And he said, could you edit the back of the book? I wasn't even sure what he was talking about, but I said, of course I can edit the back of the book. And uh, off I went. I want to get into the history of the modern American conservative movement with you, but first, You know, you wrote shortly after William F. Buckley Jr.'s passing in February of 2008 in a column entitled The 20th Century's Most Consequential Journalist. You wrote, quote, Bill's distinctive voice permeated and improved his era. It will be forgotten by no one who had the delight of hearing it. What would William F. Buckley Jr. make of the state of today's discourse? He would, uh, I think the word he'd use is vulgar. It's uh, the, the vulgarians are in the saddle riding the rest of us at this point. That column to which you refer is in the book. And what I meant by the most consequential journalist is this. 
Uh, Ronald Reagan, without Ronald Reagan, the Cold War is not won as it was without a shot being fired and when it was. No Reagan without Goldwater. Goldwater's nomination took over the Republican Party and reoriented it, reoriented it in a conservative direction. No Goldwater without the National Review, which took it upon itself shortly after uh, being founded in 1955 uh, to lure Goldwater, in fact, trap him into running for president. And no National Review without a spark in the mind of a young Yale graduate named Bill Buckley. Therefore, Buckley has uh, won the Cold War, and therefore, he's the most consequential journalist of the 20th century. QED. You're one of the remaining columnists that has both a direct personal and intellectual lineage to Buckley. But the conservatism that you espouse is very different than the conservatism that is broadly understood, either by the public or, frankly, the political class today. And you, you write in your previous book, Quote, the proper question for conservatives is, what do you seek to conserve? The proper answer is concise but deceptively simple. We seek to conserve the American founding. Expand on that for us. Easy, in three steps. <clears throat> the first, the founding, the premises of the founders was that there is a fixed human nature. Second, there are natural rights, that is, rights that are appropriate and necessary for the flourishing of people of our nature. Third, governments are, to use the language of the Declaration of Independence, instituted among men to secure, the most important word in the Declaration, to secure those rights. Government doesn't give us our rights. First come rights, then comes government. And those rights must be protected by a government strong enough to protect them, but not so strong to threaten them. Therefore, we need, as the founders understood, the Madisonian architecture of government. Separation of powers, Congress primary, first Article I of the Constitution. And we need, as we quickly had from Marbury Madison on, an explicit acknowledgement of judicial review and a role for the judiciary and the judicial supervision of democracy. To that end, uh, and I write a lot about this in the book, the biggest change in my thinking in my years as a columnist is my change in thinking about the courts. For a long time, I was like most conservatives in the 60s and 70s. I was an advocate of what we call judicial restraint. This was in large measure a recoil against the somewhat freewheeling jurisprudence of the Earl Warren Court. However, I think now that uh, often judicial restraint justified as deference to majoritarian institutions is in fact a dereliction of judicial duty. It is the job of the, of the court to supervise the excesses of majoritarian institutions, including the presidency, and to be, uh, be on the grounds that if we're going to have limited government, Congress will not limit itself it will not even limit its delegating of essentially legislative powers to the presidency, and the presidents will not limit themselves. Therefore, an engaged judiciary, and that's now the, the language on, on the, within the conservative movement, those opposed to judicial restraint are in favor of judicial engagement. Clark Neely and others have written about this. Well, Clark is at the Cato Institute. And a, a large number of the columns in my book are about how simple justice requires a constant intervention of the judiciary 
against the excesses of majoritarian institutions, be they city councils or Congress. As you think about uh, conservatism and the preservation of the American founding, how has the current iteration of the conservative movement departed from the conservation of the founding principles? Well, if you want to know what conservatism isn't, start with populism. Populism is the belief that the masses of people have clear passions, that those passions should be translated as directly and immediately as possible into policy. And the logic of that is they should be translated into policy by an unfettered president. All of those things are wrong. It calls to mind uh, H.L. Mencken's famous definition of democracy as the belief that the people know what they want and deserve to get it good and hard. It seems to me that conservatism wants public opinion adhered to, but it wants it refined and tempered and filtered through representative institutions. Representation, which is the essential doctrine of Republican form of government, means that the people do not decide issues, they decide who will decide. People will say, well, that sounds inherently elitist, to which the answer is guilty as charged. The question is never, will elites rule? It's which elites will rule. And the challenge of democracy is to get broad consent to worthy elites. And that is what conservatism should be setting its mind to, not pandering to the public by telling them that that, uh, every gust of public opinion should blow the country hither and yon. So in your current book, you have several columns where you disparage anti-capitalist conservatives like Senator Marco Rubio with his common good capitalism and market market skeptic Republicans like Josh Hawley. And you also write that Tucker Carlson's, quote, nationalistic conservatism is paternalistic populism. How do you understand the modern American conservative movement's economic agenda fusing with populism? Well, the reason... uh capitalism is inherent in the American understanding of conservatism is this. European conservatism was born in reaction against the French Revolution, in reaction against the defense, as European conservatives saw it, of hierarchy, of aristocracy, a throne and altar somehow merged. When conservatism crossed the Atlantic, it became very different. It, it welcomed the churning of a free society. It welcomed the creativity of the spontaneous order, to use the phrase uh, Frederick Hayek used constantly. Someone once said, the story of the Bible reduced to one sentence is, God created man and woman and promptly lost control of events. Conservatives rather like that absence of control because control will restrict freedom and will restrict the creativity of this churning of of a spontaneous order society. When these so-called conservatives come along and say, well, we now are going to have hyphenated conservatism, common good conservatism, et cetera, et cetera. Inevitably, they are saying, the market is inadequate. Therefore, the allocation of wealth and opportunity should be more heavily influenced by government. That is an invitation to rent-seeking, and my book is full of examples of rent-seeking, by which I mean It's an economist term, but it simply means bending public power to private advantage. A number of my columns talk about the public choice theory, which simply demystifies government. 
public choice theory, James Buchanan won a Nobel Prize for expounding it. Uh, public choice theory says that uh, when people in the private sector pursue their self-interest, that's considered normal. But presumably when people in government acquire a kind of saintly altruism, that they don't pursue their, their private interests. Public choice theory says they're exactly the same. People in the private sector try to maximize profits. People in the public sector try to maximize power. And we should have this unsentimental view of government and act accordingly so as to not do as the Hollies and the Rubios do, which is set the stage for justifying increased government allocation of wealth and opportunity. And yet in doing so, many carry the mantle of conservatism. They call themselves conservative. Our victory was a victory and a win for conservative values. President Trump's the leader of the conservative movement. He's the leader of the America First movement. He's the leader of the Republican Party. When we combine the conservative principles of the Republican Party with the boldness of Donald Trump, we will win. We're not the past, we're the future. We represent what's coming next, and there is no way that we're gonna back down. Let me tell you this right now, Donald J. Trump ain't going anywhere. Are these individuals conservative? Uh, not then, not in what they were advocating then. You know, Abraham Lincoln was fond of the story of saying, if I call a tail a leg, how many legs does a dog have? Five? No. Four, because calling a tail a leg doesn't make it a leg. And calling something conservatism doesn't make it conservatism. Is it possible that the thing that Republicans are calling conservatism now simply means whatever it is that Donald Trump supports? Yes. I think if Donald Trump came out tomorrow and said that uh, the square root of nine is 17, he'd get a fair number of people say, that's right, square root of nine is 17. Uh, this is because the Republican Party is in a very peculiar position. A large number of its elected officials are terrified of their voters, terrified that the voters will be inflamed against them by the next sulfuric belch of a tweet from Mar-a-Lago. And if you're afraid of your voters, you don't really respect your voters. And if you don't respect them, you don't really like them, which puts the Republican Party today in a very strange position, a very brittle position. And that's why uh, when a political party becomes something other than a party is normally understood, a cult of personality, it's in for, for heavy weather. You have said that conservatism is a persuasion without a party, but American conservatism became a persuasion with a party in the Reagan era, I, I would suggest. And you appeared on the original firing line with William F. Buckley Jr. several times, including with Ronald Reagan in 1978 in the debate over whether the United States should ratify the Panama Canal Treaty. You argued in favor of the treaty's ratification. Ronald Reagan argued against it. Conservatives particularly are supposed to be realistic about the the, the real way the world works. And we know that treaties generally ratify acts of force and generally yield to acts of force and situations of force. Uh, all the force in the world couldn't put our ships through there if they just let the water out of the locks. 
Yes, but if they let the water out of the locks, they can do that, of course, with a treaty. There's no treaty in the world. No bottle of ink and no amount of paper can prevent acts of force. One of the reasons I like that clip is because you offered this real-world argument, uh, this kind of pragmatism that you argue is the hallmark of conservative thinking. Do you think that is still true? Uh, not really. It, it seems to me that that conservatism today is sort of wishful thinking, the wish being father to many, many thoughts. Uh, I should tell you something about that firing line. Bill Buckley always thought uh, it was Reagan's idea to have that debate. And Bill said Reagan was gearing up to run for the Republican nomination in 1980. And he was afraid that the Panama Canal Treaty would go down to defeat and that this would spark violence in Central America and that he would be blamed for it. This is Bill's theory. I don't know if it's true. And therefore, Ronald Reagan wanted to have this debate to signal that Bill, Reagan's on one side, Buckley's on the other. Conservatives are free to disagree. It's not, a, it's not an iron catechism to oppose the canal treaties. Reagan was, in that sense, note, realistic. He was a cunning man, uh, a great, great subtle political thinker who masked his subtlety and his political cunning behind that uh, preternatural affability. It's my understanding that Buckley later said that had Reagan not taken that position, he may not have actually won the Republican nomination. That's quite possible because uh, Reagan, uh, when he was running in 76 against Gerald Ford for the nomination, he was getting routed and he turned around and, and made it a very close call at the Kansas City Convention uh, in the summer of 76 because he started stressing the Panama Canal. And it, 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 in, it endeared him to a, to a large number of Americans uh, who, frankly, had not thought of the Panama Canal for most of their lives, but suddenly decided we couldn't live without it. Uh, and, and Reagan, again, shrewd politician that he was, knew the hold that this had on a large portion of the Republican nominating electorate. The party today, of course, is a long way from the party of Reagan. And one of your columns in this new anthology called Worse Can Be Better, you write, quote, the angriest conservatives show no interest in what was until recently conservatism's substance, limited government, balanced budgets, free trade, curbs in executive power, entitlement reform, collective security. Where, in your view, did the Republican Party depart from conservative thinking and the conservative sensibility? I think it departed with the uh, nomination of Donald Trump, who had no prior record of interest in any of those things that you just mentioned. Uh, the Republican Party takes its coloration, as all, both parties do, from their presidential nominees. And until the Republican Party decides that it's going to take a different kind of nominee, it will not have a different coloration. I don't think that Mr. Trump is forever. Now, Mr. Trump is an entertainer, and in my judgment, he's worked one pedal on the organ quite enough, and I'm not sure there's another pedal there for him. He's a, he's a, his themes are, to say no more, familiar. And I mean, there have been some modest changes in the 1980s. It was Japan that was going to be the ruin of the United States. Now it's China trade. But the theme is the same. And what I think the Republican Party needs to do is get back to the idea that if you're going to have 
freedom and a creative society, you need limited government. And if you're going to have limited government, you need to have an engaged judiciary. How will an engaged judiciary reform the Republican Party to make it more conservative? Well, by supporting the reform judiciary, the Republican Party will say the following. We understand that majoritarian institutions are important. We understand the rule of law is important. But we also understand this. America is not about a, con- a process, majority rule. America is about a condition, liberty. And when the Republican Party says, we ju- hold up every policy to decide how it does to enhance American liberty, that will put the Republican Party back in control of the basic American vocabulary, the vocabulary that was the Republicans' uh, uh, vocabulary through the Reagan years. When you say Trump is not forever, uh, I certainly would like that to be true. There are many reform Republicans who would like that to be true. There's no evidence that that's true. In fact, there's increasing evidence that his hold on the party is as strong as ever, and that he continues to intend to be as influential as ever within the context of Republican primary politics and Republican congressional politics and perhaps presidential politics. Is your view wishful thinking? I certainly wish it's true, but it's more than a wish behind it. First of all, nothing lasts forever. Certainly men in their 70s don't last forever, which Mr. Trump is. Mr. Trump uh, has to decide, first of all, if he's going to run. If he's not going to run, he can be on the sidelines bombarding those in in the arena with tweets. But those in the arena will find their own voices in their own room for maneuvering. I do not think there is a precedent in American history, and I don't think there's about to be one where a former and defeated president exercises ongoing control over the party. History will pass him by. So history is your marker. Well, I I do believe uh, that history is to be studied. It has been called philosophy teaching by example. As you you notice in my book, is constantly full of historical references. Uh, because history is what we fight over, because history tells us where we're going, because it shows where we've been. Now, George Orwell said, he who controls the past controls the future, and he who controls the present controls the past. This is why we fight over, and there's a column in my book on this, on the 1619 Project from the New York Times. It says not only that America's real founding was the arrival of slaves in Virginia in 1619. But, and this is really the most factually preposterous part of this, but that the American Revolution was fought to defend slavery because Lord Dunsmore, the British uh, uh, ruler of Virginia, promised that slaves that fled their masters and joined in the British fight against the Americans would be freed. Now, Dunsmore's proclamation came after George Washington was made commander-in-chief of the colonial army, after Lexington and Concord, after the Boston Tea Party, after the Boston Massacre, after the Stamp Act. In other words, the war was up and running before this event that the New York Times somehow thinks started the war and explained America's participation in the war. History may pass him by, but there is every indication that Trump is going to run again in 2024, which would suggest that his influence is far from over. 
What will happen to the Republican Party if he runs again? It's hard to say because it's hard to say who would be running against because I do not expect the current president, Mr. Biden, to run again. At which point the Democrats are going to have their own problems because there's going to be Kamala Harris, a woman of color, standing there. And how do you deny the nomination to someone even though she's not particularly popular with the American people? You may remember she dropped out of the nomination scramble before the first votes. I really doubt your assumption that uh, Donald Trump is going to run again. I don't think his ego could stand a second defeat. And I think a second... Well, how could his ego stand a first defeat? He didn't, remember, he didn't. He doesn't actually believe that he was defeated this oh, time. Oh, I forgot that part. Yes, I forgot that Biden's not really president. <laughs> but uh, uh, I, I think even to Donald Trump, there is a limit to the resistance to reality. Reality has a way of imposing itself. And... Uh, I say wait and see. There's a long way to go between now and when Donald Trump uh, plunges in again. My hesitancy is that Republicans have kidded themselves for a long time about the willingness of Donald Trump to do things that they just think aren't possible. And it's only gotten us um, all, all the things that you write about so aptly in your columns um, and undermining of conservatism and constitutional democracy. Well, uh, you think you might run. I think you won't run. And as they say in sports, that's why they play the games. We're going to find out. One more reflection on the state of the modern American conservative movement. When Paul Ryan left the House of Representatives when he was Speaker of the House, I heard him warn multiple groups of the, quote, conservative industrial complex, which he referred to as the vast network of activist groups funded in opposition to anything they deemed insufficiently conservative. And along those same lines, some have noted that the famous Eric Hoffer quote describes today's conservative movement, quote, that every great cause begins as a movement, becomes a business, and eventually degenerates into a racket. Do you think these criticisms are fair? I think there's an aspect of the conservative project that is in the money-making business. Yes, I do. This happens all over America. Uh, there's a whole section in my book, as you know, about what's happened in academia. One thing that's happened in academia is it's been taken over by a multi-billion dollar diversity industry. There, there are now more academic bureaucrats than there are faculty. And their job is to nurture the students and shape the students' consciousness. When you appoint a Title IX enforcement officer, that enforcement officer is going to find Title IX violations. That's their job. So we have this enormous multi-billion dollar industry now. It's permeating the human resource departments of, of uh, corporations. It's dominating our campuses. And to that extent, Eric Hoffer is indeed validated that there is always an outlying group that will try to turn a cause into a racket. Mr. Will, you were leading light in the 70s and the 80s, arguing for a greater philosophical sorting between the parties. Um, you wanted the Republican Party to really become the conservative party and that liberals in the Republican Party ought to become Democrats, right? That happened over time. And we today have much more homogeneity and purity within the parties, particularly in Congress and at the federal level, where there's very little room for dissenting opinion particularly in the Republican Party right now. How do you think that vision of yours has borne out? And has it worked? A, it, it, I've, my wish has come to pass. 
And some people will say this is a lesson and be careful what you wish for, but I don't think so. 1964, I cast my first presidential vote for Barry Goldwater, whose slogan, you may recall, was a choice, not an echo. Not the theme an echo. Was, the theme was that Americans were being uh, given a choice between full-throated liberalism and pastel liberalism. Goldwater said, not good enough. We're going to give people a choice. He was thumped. He lost 44 states, but he won the future of the Republican Party, and as I said a moment ago, led to Ronald Reagan. It is the case that the parties are unrecognizable from what they were when I came to Washington in 1970 to work on the Senate staff. Let me tell you what the, who ran the Senate. Democratically controlled Senate. Stennis of Mississippi Armed Services. Eastland of Mississippi uh, Judiciary. Uh, McClellan of Arkansas, Labor Committee, Richard Russell of Georgia, uh, uh, Spessard Holland, Sparkman of Alabama. It was all Southern, mostly segregationist, conservative Democrats, of whom there are none left. Not, never mind the, cons the segregation, no conservative Democrats left. So to that extent, we've had the sorting. I do think that that does not explain today's bitterness. Yes, yes. You can still have a perfectly civil argument across clear ideological lines. And in fact, as I, as I argue in, in my book, I am more alarmed by the consensus within the political class than I am by the discord within the political class, by which I mean this. I think the political class today is more united by class interests than it is divided by ideology. And the class interests that they share, from Elizabeth Warren on the left to the far right, is a permanent, powerful incentive for deficit spending. That is, everyone, left, right, and center, wants to give the American people a dollar's worth of government and charge them 75 cents for it, and to fob 25% of the cost of today's government off on the unborn and hence unconsenting future generations. This is clearly decadent democracy. It's clearly immoral, and it's clearly universally practiced. So there's still space for someone to stand athwart history yelling stop. Exactly. On the point of this ideological sorting impurity, I just I want to go back to just one point that you made because there are conservatives in your ilk, in your molds, like Yuval Levin, who reflect upon the way to reform Congress in order for it to become a more functional uh, institution along the lines that the founders intended. And he laments that there has been such an ideological sorting in Congress that it has undermined the ability for regular bargaining and accommodation to happen within the parties and with each other. And I wonder if that impulse to purge liberals from the Republican Party and conservatives from the Democratic Party doesn't contribute to that sclerosis and paralyzation that we've seen in Congress. That is, that's a very defensible argument and particularly applicable to the House, where almost all the seats today are safe seats. And therefore, the only thing a, a Democrat fears is a challenge in the primary from the left, and conservatives feel fear of primary challenge from the right. And this leads to an increasing polarization. That's, that's an arguable. But the parties didn't sort themselves out by them by themselves. They had a lot of help from the voters. And we've undergone in this country what's called the big sort. It's the title of a very good book. 
That is, Americans have sorted themselves out. They now get their own news from congenial sources. They live in politically homogenous uh, suburbs or in, in inner city neighborhoods. Uh, this unquestionably does lead to a kind of barricades mentality where you're looking across the barricades at an adversary. But it's happened. And it doesn't seem to me that it is incompatible with a more civil kind of politics. In one column entitled, How Not to Select Presidential Candidates, you describe, quote, the grotesquely swollen place the presidency now occupies in the nation's governance and consciousness. At, at what point did the presidency take on such an outsized position? Well, it began with Woodrow Wilson, who uh, said the president's job is to interpret the nation to itself. And a fully effective, nimble, decisive president should not be constrained by Congress, by the separation of powers, or by the judiciary. He was the, the beginning of the theory of the emancipated presidency. The next great uh, advancer of that was the man who came to Washington first to be assistant secretary of the Navy under Woodrow Wilson, Franklin Roosevelt, who began his first fireside chat with two words. They don't appear in the text of it up at Hyde Park Library, but he said them. He began his saying, my friends. Now, this was frankly novel that the American people should want the president to be their friend. A kind of new intimacy had to be born. And this, of course, was intensified first by radio and then by television, so that we now had presidents in our living rooms at the dinner hour every night, every day of the week. This is a, a part of the unhealthy expansion of presidential power, the presidential presence in our lives. And as I say, fundamentally inimical to the institutional equilibrium that James Madison bequeathed to us, where the, we have properly rivalrous institutions. I want to ask you about executive power, because you, you even said last summer that one of the greatest consequences of a Trump win would have been, quote, unhinged assertion of executive prerogatives. Now, President Biden has been in office for eight months and is testing the limits of presidential power is the American presidency, no matter the party, creeping towards that inevitable expansion and perhaps even, dare I say it, totalitarianism? Not totalitarianism, and I'm confident that well short of that, the, the courts will step in. But you're quite right in that it's a bipartisan problem. Donald Trump said, Und I've got Article 2, meaning that section of the Constitution, and I can do whatever I want. That's a rather expansive understanding of Article Two, the heart of which is simply the injunction that the president shall take care that the laws are faithfully executed. Joe Biden in December, when he was president-elect, said, I cannot mandate vaccines. Now as president, he says, oh yeah, well, come to think about it, I can. Barack Obama, who of course elevated uh, Mr. Biden to the vice presidency, said more than 20 times, I do not have the power to unilaterally do what he then unilaterally did regarding immigration laws. So it's a, it's a bipartisan failing, a bipartisan temptation. And again, and this is why I write in, in my new book so much about judicial engagement, a bipartisan failing that only courts can temper and ultimately thwart. 
I think the audience will be interested to know if they haven't followed your columns as closely as I have, um, that you voted for President Biden because you said he would be an improvement over Donald Trump. Now, given the trillions in spending, the proposed tax increases, the federal mandates and the failure in Afghanistan, would you still say that he's an improvement? Yes, unquestionably, because I, I believe in the axiom, the truism really, that politics is downstream from culture. And our civic culture uh, has been radically changed by the coarseness of the previous president. You can't unring a bell, and you can't unsay what he said, and you can't un undo the manners that he made acceptable in American public life. Furthermore, remember the great driver of our fiscal imbalance in this country are the entitlement programs. And Mr. Trump ran for president promising not to to reform the entitlement programs. In that regard, he's precisely like Mr. Biden. When, when Donald Trump was the Republican nominee, Paul Ryan sat down with him and tried to explain to him the unsustainable trajectory of our entitlement programs. And Trump said, yeah, but I won't be here when the bad things happen. Now, that's a bad behavior. It's not unique to Mr. Trump. They all feel that way that someone else will have to pick up the pieces. It's conservatism's job to call the country to realism, to face facts, and to make sure that they're not, these pieces are not smashed into little pieces. Much of your latest book is, uh, are, are columns that are based on history. Uh, what has history shown you about where, in a practical sense, you and those who defend the conservative sensibility can go from here? Well, what history tells us is what made America a success and what makes America such a success to this day that people by the millions are clamoring to get in and go to work here is respect for limited government, respect for the spontaneous order of a capitalist society. What validates conservatism as I understand it and as I outline it in my book is the fact that it has a stunning record of success, not just here, but in what Deidre McCloskey calls the great enrichment that has lifted literally billions of people from subsistence poverty into a more comfortable life in the last 40 years. Success is everywhere, whereas the failure of the alternatives to capitalism the statism of those who masked their departures from capitalism and hyphenated capitalism of the sort you were talking about at the beginning, the failures of those are, are spectacular. You know, a, a Brit British socialist leader of the post-war labor government said, the United Kingdom is founded on coal and surrounded by fish. It would take organizing genius to have a scarcity of either. Within two years, socialism produced a scarcity of both fish and coal. The fact is capitalism works. Conservatism works. It has in the past and will again when we try these hyphenated capitalisms and get back to the real thing. One could read through nearly five decades of your columns and find reason to be pessimistic about the American experiment you even called yourself a, quote, intelligent pessimist. But you also recognize that history's essential promise is, quote, possibility, and that today's fights are, quote, worth winning. Isn't that optimism? 
Yes, what history teaches is contingency, that things are not necessarily going to be one thing or the other, that individual initiative can make a difference. Bill Buckley demonstrated that. We began by talking about how Bill made an enormous difference. Ideas have consequences, to take a title of one of the books that was part of the canonical conservatism library at the beginning of the post-war period when conservatism began to grow. There's no question that there are grounds for anxiety. I have an entire section in the book we're talking about on what's happening in academia because We've, we've had 800 years of evolving the great universities of the Western world through thickets of ecclesiastical and political interference. And it's quite possible to kick all that away in a generation. We now have in academia people who have simply given up on the culture of democracy, which is a culture of persuasion. In the name of diversity, in an Orwellian inversion of language, they are imposing an orthodoxy and enforcing an orthodoxy in an ideologically monochrome campuses from, from coast to coast. And I, I relate that in the book, by the way, to the way we now raise children, the way parenting is done. We have parents raising such risk-averse children, children who are wrapped in bubble wrap and delivered to colleges, never having had to fail, never having had to play on their own, unsupervised from adults. And they arrive on campus and say, this is frightening. We don't want free speech. We want freedom from speech. We want safe spaces. We want trigger warnings to protect us against microaggressions and all the rest. Bias response teams to swoop around the country, to, uh, around the campus, protecting us from things that might make us distressed or sad or unhappy or, or feel uncongenial. From parenting to the campuses, there's a direct line, and what happens on campus does not stay on campus, which is why Bill Buckley, of course, in his first book was about a campus. It was God and Man at Yale wherein he took on the political correctness of his day. Listen, aside from your historical ruminations and your philosophical and political ones, you also write about baseball, your true love. Um, let me ask you, because you're so serious about your passion for baseball and its traditions and its place in part of the American fabric, you also sound very serious about Major League Baseball's need for reform. You wrote in July that the All-Star game has become too slow, too data-driven, and you don't like to shift defenses. So despite your uh, conservative bona fides, would you say that you're a, a baseball progressive or a baseball reformer? I consider that a vast slur to be called progressive about anything. Certainly not. No, uh, it was... Uh, it was uh, it's a conservative principle that in order to stay the same, you must be ready to change. In order to preserve the essence of something, you have to make some changes. Burke said it. Others have said it. Uh, baseball is no different. Baseball, after all, is a, a great sport for democracy because it's the sport of the half loaf. There's a lot of losing in it, a lot of compromising. Every team goes to spring training knowing it's going to win 60 games, it's going to lose 60 games. We play the whole six months to sort out the middle 42. If you win 10 out of 20 games, you're definitionally mediocre. If you win 11 out of 20 games, 
you're very apt to wind up in the World Series, or at least in playing in October. That's part of the fun of writing a column is, is you can, you know, my view of a columnist is, and I hope my book reflects this, if I don't write 20% of my columns on books, I'm not doing my job right. Because books, for all the chatter about the new media, books are still, in my judgment, the primary carriers of ideas. If I don't write about things that are not just below the fold on the front page of the New York Times, but not even in the New York Times, I'm not doing my job. Of all the columns in that book, and maybe of all the 6,000 or so that I've written, the column in that book that got the most uproar is my denunciation of denim, which had a larger point. And this is why I think, this is how I think columnists ought to operate. Take something small and particular and related to a larger theme. My problem with denim is this. You look down an airport concourse, and there's a father in his early 40s, and he's with a 12-year-old child. And the 12-year-old son and the father are dressed exactly alike. Tennis shoes, blue jeans, a t-shirt. And if mother's there, she's wearing blue jeans. Now, there was a time when an adult American did not dress like a child American, when stages of life were respected and honored and children were supposed to be children, but adults were not supposed to be childish. And this, led, this leads into, it seems to me, a larger cultural problem, which is the failure to distinguish between parents' real responsibilities and the kind of alliance between parents and their children that precludes proper rearing of children. Of all the columns that you assembled, I've, I've heard you say that the one you feel most strongly about is the one you wrote about your son in the baseball park. Yeah, it's uh, about my son, Jonathan, uh, turning 40. Uh, he'll turn 50 next year. John has Down syndrome. When he was born in 1972, in a Catholic hospital, Georgetown University Hospital. Uh, the next morning, a hospital official came and said, the first choice you have to make is whether or not to take him home. And I said, well, I sort of thought that's what parents did with their children. They took them home from the hospital. At that point, it was perfectly natural, if you wanted, to institutionalize a child simply because he wasn't perfect. Down syndrome is a congenital uh, defect leading to some physical differences and some mental retardation. Uh, when he was born in 1972, the life expectancy of Down syndrome children was 20 years because they were neglected, they weren't stimulated, they weren't nourished. Well, times have changed for the better. Uh, John, as I say, will be 50 next year. He works in the Washington Nationals clubhouse, which means he gets up every morning and goes to a major league ballpark, which means he has a better job than I've got. Uh, he's a happy, productive citizen whipping around Washington on public transportation, the buses, the metro. Uh, some things have, have improved for the better, considerably the better. There's also, as I think you've noticed in there, right next to that, there's a column about Iceland trying to solve what it calls the problem of Down syndrome. Now, how my son John became a problem to the people of Iceland, I do not know. But what they mean is Iceland is extremely proud of the fact that it has almost eliminated through prenatal testing and then abortions uh, people like John. Well, I consider that, strictly speaking, genocide. 
Genocide is the attempt to extinguish a category of human beings. John is a, is a human being, and he's here to stay. And with that, Mr. Will, I'm so grateful to have had the opportunity to welcome you back to Firing Line. Thank you for your time. Congratulations on this last uh, greatest and latest edited anthology of your work and on your contributions to the conservative movement over many, many years. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed this very much. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.